Probably wondering why we had biscuits. That's why. It's Easter Sunday. And this is a pretty profound uh, weekend for the life of the Christian. Because this is the weekend that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, died on our behalf, and was resurrected on the third day, thus redeeming us into God's kingdom forever. He made a way, as we just sang, he made a way for us to be right with God at a time in our lives when, when humanity was unable to be right with God. And so what we celebrate today is the fact that he has risen. And historically, in the Christian church, we, we almost call this like an in-worship creed. We have affirmed this truth at the beginning of every Easter service that we have had here. And certainly churches in our tradition around the country and the world do the same thing. And so I simply want to invite you to, on three different, three different times, I'm going to declare that he has risen. And I would love for you if, you, if you are so willing to, to reply back that he has risen indeed. Because that's why we are here every Sunday. But this Sunday, we really focus on this reality in our lives. So are we ready? Okay. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He has risen. He has risen indeed. He has risen. And he absolutely has. He's given us the way to worship him, a way to love him, a way to be cared for by God, our Father in heaven. And although what we do today is rooted in the Easter celebration, this is something that really shapes every area and facet of our lives. And so each year around Easter time, uh, there is sort of a cycle that I refer to when it comes to the teaching I give. Some years it's heavily emotive. We talk to the heart more deeply. Other years we are addressing uh, sort of the thought patterns of the Christian. This year, we're going to talk a little bit about both of those things as we look at what I would like to call something that's almost evangelistic in nature. Sort of coming to the table today, thinking about what it means to, to believe. What does it mean to actually have faith? And the question I offer you at the beginning of this message, and I pray you will think about it through the message and process it through the week, is what is your faith in? Because that is exactly what we are here to talk about today. We declare today that God has given the world an opportunity to have faith in his son through what he's done for us on the cross and the power of the resurrection. Now, even though a great many people confidently affirm the truth, certainly in this room, I'm sure many of you do, that Jesus has risen, in our world and community there are people who affirm this, it's interesting that this time of year, the religious rhetoric around this event that we believe established Christianity, it really tends to ramp up, similar to Christmas. Everybody comes out of the woodwork for various reasons. For whatever reasons, people in churches become more vocal about why their faith matters, uh, while some folks on the other end of the spectrum who are skeptical about the resurrection seem to be emboldened in a similar way to speak against it. And I can tell you on a firsthand basis, I have noticed this, every year it sort of increases. And there are a few ways that I've sensed this, and I want to share it with you. So through my postal mailbox, uh, the advertising in my email inbox, and without question what I've been reading on social media, particularly advertising, over the past month I have been flooded by this stuff, and it is very likely that you have too. Let me explain. Over the last month on a regular basis, I have been mailed something by another church asking me to leave this church to start going to their church this Sunday. Just about, I think I got five or six of them over the past two weeks. Now, rest assured, after a great deal of prayer, I opted not to do that this morning. Amen. Yes, thank you. It had nothing to do with you. It was about the biscuits today. I'm just going to be very honest. Nothing, nothing to do with you at all. I came to that conclusion. Sausage matters. Sausage matters, all right? Right? Nonstop. You too. You got them all. On a daily basis, my, this is truly multiple times a day, my email inbox has literally been flooded with church marketing emails asking me to buy something that I'm told is going to make what we're doing here right now better. It's going to keep you. It's going to stick you around. It's going to bring all your friends that don't believe in Jesus here. It's going to bring all the people who do believe in Jesus here. They just tell me if I'll buy whatever this is, a new book, some kind of community group material, a sermon idea, a marketing campaign. 
worship music, a host of other things. If I'll just invest some money in that, then Easter will be better. And on Facebook, I get this healthy dose of advertisements that are both for and against religion. Every day, with increasing intensity, I'm told that I'm just one click away from a Christian leader who promises to show me something I've never thought about when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, or some form of atheism that promises to show me why all this is ridiculous and never actually happened. Just depends on wherever you click is where your mind can go. And I share this with you today so that you see, and you're, not, you're very intelligent people, you know this stuff is going on around us, but what it signifies is that there are very different opinions about what we believe happened today. Even in the Christian community, we have different focal points and emphases of why it happened, and for a great many people, whether or not it really did happen. And that's a question, that, a statement that matters just as much for the Christian as it does the non-Christian. Faith is something that we, we, we come to faith in Jesus. Right? There's this point where we overcome an absence of faith and affirm who he is. But for the Christian, we would be naive to think that there are not times in our life where we are without faith or we have less faith in what, what we say we believe. And that's really what I want to talk about today. So in short, there are a host of reasons why people think the resurrection is more of a myth than a truth or they sort of hijack it for other reasons. But there's only one that I want to look at today because it is growing in popularity in our culture. More than ever, this has become a battle cry of the world that we live in. And I would say it's a battle cry that, that unbelieving folks sort of, they, they claim this when they think about what we're talking about today. And for us, in a more subtle and subversive way, this same attitude can sort of drown the hope and joy out of our hearts that we're singing about today, that we're talking about today. And so my teaching today is aimed at debunking a common misconception about the nature of faith for those who first deny it altogether. And for those of us that are in Jesus, I want it to be an encouragement for those of us that want to grow in our faith and followership of Jesus. And so this type of doubt will keep you from exploring and experiencing the grace and hope of Jesus' resurrection for the first time or in renewed and meaningful ways every day of our lives. And so we open this morning by, by examining the misconception. This is something I've talked about at our church before. It's something that I have discipled people in before because it is the root reality of what it means to have faith. And it simply is this. When we talk about the resurrection, which is what we're discussing today, believing Jesus' resurrection happened, it requires us to take a reasonable step of faith. Step of faith nonetheless. Not necessarily a blind leap of ignorance. We're not stepping off of a cliff into the abyss when we talk about faith. And that's how in a world that is increasingly hostile towards the ideas of Christianity, Christianity is seen. And I want to read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 to you. This is sort of the, the crux of what we're going to talk about today. I want to reread it. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? That is a statement we're going to revisit on the back end of this message. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Figuring out who's going to move it, and then when they arrived, they realized it's already been moved. Now, in the modern world, it's become popular to believe that in order to have faith, you have to not think anymore. And faith, faith in thought, faith in practice, <clears throat> faith just beyond sort of invisible belief in leprechauns, that's what a lot of people think faith is, it's believed to be at odds with each other, faith and thought. And so for many years, this has been the battle cry of the atheism movements in North America and Europe. 
And you might remember, because I reference this billboard every holy week we have, Christmas and Easter, there's this popular roadside billboard that's put up all over America around the major Christian holy days. Pardon me. Like Christmas and Easter. And it sarcastically says, faith, check your brains at the door. Now, in this worldview, people of faith have been accused of pursuing this thoughtless road in life, a life of robotic weakness defined by abandoning your thinking. I have to take a sip of water. I'm sorry. One of you amend that. Thank you so very much. I lost my voice on Thursday, so bear with me here. So in this worldview, people see faith as a life of robotic weakness defined by abandoning your thinking and reasoning faculties. And what's interesting is that following God is reduced to sort of serving a deity who says, not only do you not have to think, I'm going to think for you. And then he hands you this book of rules and regulations called the Bible that does just that. It's your brain, your literal brain. And in this camp, faith is viewed as a slavish hijacking of your life. And in my experience, this belief seems to be more popular with people who have had very minimal, sometimes it's just very uninformed, very minimal contact with the Christian church or extremely unhealthy contact with the Christian church at some point in their life. And so in in the world of thought, this is considered to be pretty solid and like super sophisticated. And it is one of the most common rebuttals used to to sort of address what we are, are singing and declaring today in the Christian faith, whether or not Jesus is real, is who he said he is, and did what he said he did. Sophisticated it might seem, but those of you who have genuinely walked with Jesus know that this is just not true. And I want to give you an example of this. I have a lot of conversations with all kinds of people, and one that is my most favorite regarding this is one that I share with you about six years ago, so I know you will all remember it. It's it's the story of of a friend of mine that I have that is a mechanical engineer, does like really incredible crazy stuff, like puts sort of stuff in space and is, is sort of rooted around, main job anyways, aerospace engineering. That's where the mechanics are applied. And so this person designs incredibly sophisticated systems for most of the fighter aircraft that our U.S. military use. Whatever they're doing up in the skies, he is on one of the teams that actually helps them to do that stuff. And so very intelligent person, very, very thoughtful, but also deeply loves Jesus. And what's interesting here is that in in this person exists this ability to understand faith and I'll just use the big word science. Two disciplines that today by today's standards are supposed to be at odds with each other. And what the point I'm making about this conversation is that while we both recognize throughout the course of our dialogue that each discipline, faith and and science, faith and thought, there are serious questions each discipline has to answer to satisfy the other. I'm not saying it's like a slam dunk in each category. Part of thinking about our faith and understanding the way people see our faith is by recognizing they have some legitimate questions. But what I want to say is that in this person's mind is a person who, when they came to Jesus, already a pretty serious person regarding their thoughts, they actually were forced to think more deeply about things. And this is what Christianity really does. In every area that it touches, our heads our hearts and our hands, it challenges us to be different, to think differently, to emote differently, to serve and touch people differently. The road of faith is not ever a place where we defer responsibility or thought or our emotions to a God who doesn't care about us, who robotically wants to design us in a way that, that basically tells us what to do every single day. Rather, it's pursuing a more meaningful relationship with our Father in heaven. And what happens is when, when that happens... You are starting to address, you have to address, it's impossible not to address the most significant issues in your life and in the lives of the people that are around you. How, you might ask, how does this work? 
Well, one of the marks of genuine faith, genuine faith, I mean a faith that is resolute, not perfect, but resolute in its understanding of who Jesus is and is trying to pursue him. When you have that type of faith, God is going to demand that you begin to think about things, serve in ways, care about people in ways that you once had the luxury to ignore. Let me give you some examples of this. If you are in Jesus, and I mean really pursuing him, you are called to think through areas of your personal morality in light of God's ways. Everything you do, God has a say on that. And you have to make a decision on that. We're called to think about what it means to represent God's righteous arm of justice in the world, where we see injustice. We're not given the freedom to no longer not, not act. We can't turn the page of the newspaper, scroll down the blog, or pass on the digital news we read. We are called to interact. We're called to bring the light and life of Jesus to the places it doesn't exist. We're assigned the task of not just loving the neighbors we love, but at times actually caring for our enemies in ways that are more profound and meaningful than we care for ourselves and our friends. We're challenged to think about what to do with our time, the nature of what I just taught about for the last nine weeks, what we do with our money, what we do with everything. True faith in Christ is a never-ending exercise in weighing everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did and figuring out how we think about those things, how we live in light of those things, and how we find satisfaction in those truths every single moment of our life. I don't know how a person can have genuine faith and, and say this. Far and few between. I'm not saying this isn't out there nowhere, but I'm saying that over the past 10 years, far and few between are the stories of people with a genuine God-honoring faith that just blindly stumbled into Christianity because they were saying, like, Christianity sounds good. Thoughtless robots. Sign me up. That is not the way that usually happens. In fact, it's usually met with fierce resistance because what happens is God starts touching these areas of your life and you realize to, to continue to go down that rabbit hole requires you to think about this stuff and to invite God's presence into these things. Genuine faith is almost always preceded by a, a person genuinely wrestling with a serious life issue in some of the areas that I just mentioned, or in the one we are talking about today. Could the resurrection have happened? Did it happen? The more common story is after a season of deep evaluation, people come to faith because they weighed the claims of Jesus with their mind and then eventually believed them with their hearts. And the end of this equation is that it starts to shape what you do with your hands. The head, the heart, and the hands all work together. They're all speaking to each other. And so the head without the hand and the hearts is a problem. Uh, excuse me, without the hands and the heart is a problem. Or your heart without your thoughts and your hands is a problem. Or your hands not understanding what they're supposed to be doing without the thoughts of God and the emotions, the, the, the nature of God in you, they can all become problematic. And wrapped up in our bodies, the way God has created us, is the ability to have all three of these sort of, the seats of our existence speaking into us. And so while there are many people that like to claim that our faith your faith is like checking your brain at the door. It truly is not honest, right, true, and I would even go so far as to say it's self-defeating. This is why the nature of the, the, the title of my message today is what is your faith in? That's an assumption that everybody has faith. And I'm here to tell you that everybody does have faith. Here is why this is a self-defeating way to believe, whether you're thinking about who Jesus is or you've just forgotten who he is. The truth is everyone in our world Every person in this room, every person in your life has faith in something. Everybody. It is just a matter of whether or not they know it. The real work when understanding faith is determining what it is in, not figuring out whether or not we have it. Let me explain. The literal definition of faith is having a belief or trust in someone or something. That's what faith is. Now, in the Christian faith, the object of our belief is Jesus. 
So faith is refined at some point. And I promise, even the person who ridicules those with faith, upon deeper examination, is guaranteed to have a personal faith in something. So our goal, when you think about your life in Jesus and the people he's put in your life, is not to convince people to have faith. It's to love them enough, to care about yourself enough in Christ, to identify what your faith is in. What is it you are pursuing that might be leading you away from God? What is it that people in our lives are pursuing that it's causing them to miss him in his entirety? For some, it's easy to figure out. They believe in, a, in another God. They have an identified religion. That's the easy stuff. But that's not the common stuff anymore. For others, their faith and hope lies in different things. Sometimes it's the shifting stability offered to them by, by power or success or prestige. or what, 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 That's what drives them. That's what their faith is in. They want those things above all else. Sometimes we turn to relationships. I talk about this a lot because everything we do in the Christian faith is oriented around two relationships. The one we have with our Father in heaven and the one we have with other people. And so what's driving us with our faith in, what, what our faith is in, what our hope is in, is other people. And we pursue them in a way, you know, hoping they will satisfy us like God only can. Most commonly today, people have become comfortable with telling another person that faith is just flat out silly or wrong. This is a growing, a sort of a growing attitude. While simultaneously, and here's where the rub here, they're confident that faith is silly or wrong. Your faith is wrong while simultaneously being confident enough to make the claim because they have a blind faith in themselves. That's what's happening here. They have a blind faith in their own version of what truth is or should be. They just are not aware of that. They think you're silly because you have faith, but they put their faith in themselves. And I want to give you an example of this. <clears throat> Most of you know that uh, I'm, I'm just shy of nine years living in Florida. My family and I are back in Florida, obviously. That just goes without saying. But before this, we were living in New Orleans for just shy of 10 years. I went to school in New Orleans, and uh, during our lunch breaks, while I was taking classes, I had a, a, a strong group of friends. I'm still in contact with them, with them today. They were just great men and women who really kept us sharp, thinking about faith and processing our ministries. We were serving in local churches. And so on a pretty regular basis, we would get together and talk about all kinds of things, how we were as people, you know, what life was looking like, what it meant to, to sort of pursue our calling in God's kingdom. All of us were, uh, most of us anyways, were, were being set apart to lead churches. And many of us, including myself, were going to school while we were serving churches. So we were always having these like great discussions in class and then that evening going to our churches and serving. And we went to this one place, it was a Vietnamese restaurant that was an amazing coffee shop. It was a combination where you could get like some killer Vietnamese food and coffee. And so we'd go there for about an hour, an hour and a half, most days of the week, and sort of hang out in between our classes. And one day, I went with a very good friend of mine. It was just two of us, myself and this other guy. His name is Israel. No, I guess that's why you go to seminary, because your parents named you Israel, right? We went, I went to uh, this coffee shop with my buddy Israel, who's a feisty little, like, five-foot firecracker, uh, very intelligent, and we were talking about God's sovereignty. We were, we were hammered in a class about this and really just thinking about the implications of this, what it meant in our own lives and what it means in the world and what it means to think that, you know, God is sovereign, yet we are responsible. We were digging into these ideas. And it was during that time something super interested and a little concerning began to happen. We had about an hour conversation, and I'd say about 15 minutes or so into it, it became awkwardly obvious that there was a, you know, it's, it's a small coffee shop, so there's another table just a couple of feet away, and there's a guy, a lone guy sitting there, who is very naively thinking that we are not aware that he is, in a creepy way, eavesdropping our conversation. Like, it got a little bit awkward. He was very much trying to be discreet, but he was not doing a very good job at it. And so after a while, it got more creepy. 
to the point where, um, you know, I sort of joke about this, but most people need like uh, three inches of space. The average of New Yorker needs like three feet of space. And so he was creeping up on us. And I was about to inquire gently nonetheless about what was going on here. But before I could, the situation got even worse because I'm not making this up. This guy just got up out of his seat, walked over to our table, pulled up a chair, sat down, and pr proceeded to tell us what we already knew. He had been listening to our conversation for some time and just had to join in. And then he sat down and started talking to us like he knew us, like the weird table at your family reunion with all the cousins you haven't seen in 25 years. That's what happened, right? So at first, we weren't sure how to handle this. And I want to tell you why. Some of my most formative years in life were spent in major urban areas like New York and New Orleans. And because of that, I tend to have an, an initial high level of distrust with people. This is something my dad sort of pummeled into our heads growing up. You know, he used to call it a street smart. And street smarts dictate that when a random person you don't know walks up to you and starts acting like they know you, you have to ask a very, very, very serious question. You can't get this one wrong. The question is this. On a scale from 1 to 10, what is the likelihood that this person is going to try to murder me today? That's the question. <laughs> that you have to ask that question every time. And I'm telling you, you can't get that one wrong, okay? You can't. You want to answer it correctly. And so needless to say, we were not happy about this. We were very skeptical. We were sort of pushing this guy away. And then he sort of dumped all this information on our lap. My murder radar was blipping beyond control. And eventually what he said to us, this is sort of when we began to simmer. He said, listen, I know this is weird. Yes, it is. He said, I, I actually am a professor at Tulane University. I don't know if you're familiar with Tulane, but Tulane is one of the big, there's a handful of very prestigious colleges in New Orleans, uh, and Tulane is one of them. And he said, I am a religion philosophy professor at Tulane. We knew what that was because it was right up the road from our school. And he, he explained, obviously, the, the acute nature of his interest in our conversation. And he said, I, I got to get into this conversation. I cannot not have this conversation. And so he sat down. And we started talking about God's sovereignty. We actually blew off all of our classes that day. We were there for a very long time. Kids, don't blow off your classes. <laughs> Unless you might lead somebody to Jesus. That's the only time you can do that. <clears throat> Eventually, we moved through the academics and the lofty stuff, and it became very obvious why he was having this conversation with us. He moved away from all of the highbrow stuff because he wanted to discuss Christianity on a personal level. And he said, you know, the reason this fascinates me is because at one point in my life, I actually considered myself a Christian, but I don't anymore. And he went on to say, at one point in my life, I was exactly where you were. I actually went to seminary and got a degree and felt like God was calling me to ministry. And then he went on to share all the reasons why he no longer affirmed the Christian faith. And that's really where the, the crux of our conversation took off. And so we were talking about all of these things all over the map. And eventually, I just stopped the conversation and I asked him, you know, we, we were trying to get to the root of his heart. And we asked him, what, if anything, would it take for you to have faith in Jesus again? What, you know, we, we heard everything that moved him away from Jesus. We wanted to know what was it that would bring him back. And he replied, he, quoting, he'd have to literally show up and make a personal appearance to me. That's what he said. If you want me to believe in Jesus again like you do, he'd have to like be sitting at this table discussing faith with us right now. Now, that statement that's, is, is the reason why I share this story with you. Somewhat ironically, as I was being politely accused of being a thoughtless slave to my faith, there was a glaring contradiction in his thinking that was shaping his heart, his deeds, and his actions. One that is common with people who see Christianity like this. Because what he was saying is, uh, our faith, a faith founded by a man named Jesus, who historically and undeniably walked the earth. Nobody disputes that. They dispute what he did, but they don't dispute that he was real. A man seen by slews of people after his resurrection, years prior we've talked about that stuff, 
A resurrection that it wasn't isolated just to an area. It began in an area as resurrection. The movement, though, spread to the world. And eventually what it did is it established a faith that has and is currently being practiced by countless people. We cannot, we cannot count the numbers, but we know they are massive. And some 2,000 years later, we're still having this dialogue. All of this stuff that we consider blind leaps of ignorance, he was saying was ridiculous. But his faith, which he had sort of created on a hodgepodge of his desires, his personal preferences, based on the things he thought needed to happen in our world, these things he was saying were legitimate. And I want you to, to hear what I'm saying here. Make no mistake about it. This man had great faith, great faith. In some senses, it was greater than ours. It just was in himself. That's the bottom line. And that is the greatest God that is living in our world today. I'm, not, I'm saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek. Our God is greater than all gods. But the one that seems to rule the roost in our world today is the God of self where we can take all of these things and look at them and say, that's not right, that's not right, but here's what I think is right. And you're wrong for telling me that this is right, but, but you need to know you're wrong. Now let me tell you what is right. It's such a contradiction. So when we think about faith, it's important to level the playing ground. We should at least have the guts to, to recognize we do have faith. And then this was a great conversation, the, the conversation I had with this gentleman, to have a courtesy type of posture where we at least recognize we believe in something. We just are believing in different things. And I've seen enough of humanity to know that I'm not really ready to put all of my hope and trust in it. I am a human too, right? So are you. I'd rather have a God who is good and righteous and perfect in all ways. That seems a better way, a better way to pursue or a better path. So what's challenging here, I guess what I want to say today is the Easter message that I'm giving you is far less concerned with trying to convince you to have faith or to have it again. I'm much more concerned with challenging you to think about what your faith is currently in. Because every one of us has a faith in something. Even if we're here saying, I don't believe in Christianity, I just came because it was free sausage. You have faith in something. You have faith in something. Or maybe you're at the place with Jesus where, where you have forgotten what meaningful faith is. Like you believe this stuff, you affirm this stuff, but it's just not really moving the strings of your heart anymore. It's not challenging your head and it's certainly not shaping your hands, the actions, your deeds in this world. What I want to say here is that no matter where you're coming from, you need to know that Having faith does not mean that you've forfeited the right to use, to, to use your mind or anything else. It actually shows that you're starting to use your faculties that God has given you in a way that, that oftentimes those who are skeptical about these truths will not apply to themselves. It's super common, and even in that conversation at that coffee table, uh, it was sort of like Christianity was put on trial. It was being examined, and we were answering questions. But what I find is that not always, but often, when you try to apply that same scalpel of skepticism to a person who believes they don't have faith, they are not as willing to cut it up in the way they are Christianity. And that's why I would say, if anything, genuine faith might cause us to think more deeply in areas that people without a faith in a God who challenges all areas of our lives. It's not convenient to have that God in your life. And so therefore you can, sort of based on your preferences and opinions, just decide to not deal with whatever this is. You don't have to. But when you're in Jesus, you must. That's part of what it means to grow in him. A lot of times this type of person refuses to put their own skepticism and cynicism under the same scalpel they so willingly put Jesus under. And even though there's a large body of evidence that supports the Christian faith, and in particular the resurrection, it is not my intention to give them to you all today. There are other messages on our website that address that. You are free to listen to them today. That's not the emphasis of where I'm going. What I want to say today is that those evidences are great and profound they are things that we can turn to. And I want you to hear me. I'm trying to be confident in what I'm saying today because I am. But I'm not trying to have a confidence that denies that believing them isn't a step of faith. 
It is a step of faith. At some point, you have to step beyond the, the entirely logical, and you have to step into the realm of the spiritual. There is something that requires us to take a step of faith for the first time in Jesus and every time we're trying to grow in him. I want to point out, though, that that step of faith is not ignorance. It is not believing in leprechauns. No offense to leprechauns. It's actually something that's rooted in substance and history. And it can be seen in the response that Mary has at Jesus' empty tomb in verse 2. You know, it's common to hear people say, well, yeah, they believed in that stuff because that was a silly world back then. Yeah, lots of gods. I want to address that. Mark 16, 1 through 4. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Verse 2. I promised we'd revisit this. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Even though Mary walked with Jesus very closely and heard him say multiple times with increasing intensity throughout all of the Gospels that on the third day he would rise again. Think about this. They approached the tomb of Jesus, not blindly thinking dead people come back to life. Their conversation revolves around who's going to move the stone because there's a dead dude behind it. The assumption is not he's alive and well. The assumption is our Lord was just murdered and we want to see his body and anoint it with spices. How are we going to move that heavy stone? John's gospel adds an even more significant layer to this. He says their first thought about Jesus' body, like it goes beyond the stone. The stone is rolled away now and they're looking in there and they're saying like, what happened? And they're not saying, well, he told us for like, you know, 30 chapters in the Gospel of John that he was going to come back to life. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, somebody must have stole the body. His enemies must have took it because even the, the sight of a dead man's body that was so profoundly influential in the world that, that day, when it happened, they, he can't be around anymore. They're not thinking he has come back from the dead. They have all of these natural and rational thought patterns about what to do. And what I want to say here is that, think about this deeply. Even the people in Jesus' inner circle, they began the pursuit of Jesus' post-resurrection with serious questions, not a blind, thoughtless faith. I would love to have been a fly on the wall of that stone, or a fly on that stone, listening to how they filled those gaps in on what happened to Jesus' body. What we know happened, though, over the course of days and weeks, is that these initial questions, they were sort of addressed. What happens is the disciples, Jesus' followers, start weighing the facts. They start hearing things. They start looking into things. Jesus is now making an appearance in places. And eventually they believe. And this is a pattern of belief you'll find in the hearts of men and women ever since that day. They got questions. They don't get it. They don't like it. They don't agree with it. They're not sure. But what happens is, as you continue to press into those questions, something changes. And so you see, the Bible is packed with a bunch of mindless fools who have been brainwashed. And I love our church for this reason, because neither has it. While, while, while we deeply embrace thought and skepticism and questions from all sorts of life, I've never heard a question, and we have had some great slash crazy ones over the years. We've even at times had people yell them out in the middle of my sermons. That's happened before. And you are fired when you do that. That's what happens. <laughs> right? I love it. We want questions at all times. What it simply means is that all kinds of people from every walk of life, it reflects that people are thinking about a faith in Christ, about what it really means. And what that says is it requires them to, to weigh truth with their minds, to believe truth in their hearts, and then to practice living out the truth with their hands. Now, let me take this a step further. Let me speak specifically to those of you who, 
who really are saying, I believe in the resurrection. I, I know I have faith, but there are just some times when, when faith doesn't seem as strong or influential in my life as I want it to be. I have this type of faith. I just wish I could have it more deeply. I want to take this a step further. This same truth is true for those who have already found faith in Jesus and are trying to grow in it. Over the past 20 years of pastoring, I've noticed a consistent theme in the lives of people whom God has given me the privilege of counseling and discipling. Those two words are interchangeable when it comes to matters of life and faith. It's ironic that a typical counseling request or a discipling issue from a person is almost always preceded by some timid self-admission that they're struggling with something. It's a matter of life. It's a relationship issue. They've read something in the scripture and they have a strong objection to it. They, they, they cannot wrap their heads or their hearts around what Jesus says we need to abide by. Not always, but I would say almost always. If that person is a believer, they will come to me saying something like, I know I'm supposed to believe this, whatever this is, but I don't. Or I know Jesus says uh, that, that I, I should understand this, but I don't understand it. I don't get it. Or I've read this, and I know that what Jesus says my life should look, look like, I've got an area of my life that's out of sorts with that, and I can't even fix it. In fact, some days I don't even want to fix it, because I kind of enjoy this area of my life that is out of sorts. What that's, what's happening there is it's like they bring this tension up from a position of shame and embarrassment. It's as if they feel bad about it. And when that happens, my radar blips in a different way, a good way, a Holy Spirit discerning way because it's a sign of something seriously good happening. And I always try to encourage that person to see their situation from a different angle. I try to encourage them that the wrestling, the doubt, the concern, even the confusion, if you really are seeking clarity in that, you're not just sort of like what Paul says in his epistles. In our world today, it's just really cool to like be confused and stay that way. But most people that I find are trying to go somewhere in life, they recognize spaces in life can be confusing, but we want clarity in them. If you're approaching these questions, these, these sort of, you know, astoundingly big questions from that angle, what happens is you are doing something that you should not be ashamed of. That is a mark of what we're talking about today. And it is why we say at our church, what we want more than anything is for people to engage our people, whether it's in an environment like this or a community group or a lunch or wherever it happens. We want people to, to feel comfortable recognizing where they are not yet with Jesus and our church being the bridge to help them get there. We're not put on this earth to be referees flagging what people are not yet in Jesus. Our job in discipling is to help them to grow more deeply into the image of Jesus, to have greater faith in the image of Jesus. And so when a person gets that bell rung by God, it is a significant evidence that God is alive and active in you. And responding to that is the way God has been working in people's lives forever. That takes faith. It's a sign that God is still bringing things to your attention is still working in your life in a way to not only help you believe in Jesus one time, but to believe in him in such a way that you are more deeply following him. Your faith in him is growing in more deep and significant ways. The resurrection, the cross become a gateway to a, a never-ending growth cycle in Jesus Christ, what we call sanctification in the Christian faith. And in my experience, that is a sign of maturity, of a person really trying to own their faith. And that attitude is always found in the men and women being used by God in meaningful ways. And so you see, if, if you have a faith in Christ, you should know that following Christ isn't based on a leap of ignorance. It's always rooted in a willingness to take a single step beyond just what you can see. It's asking a question about your life today 
and having the confidence of knowing that God wants to answer it in your life tomorrow. It's asking one more question about what God is saying to you. And please hear what I'm about to say and having the guts to really try to find the answer. To really try to find the answer. When God speaks to you to say, I want you to speak to me in a way that helps me to have clarity in this area of my life. And what I will tell you is God wants you to have clarity in his son Jesus more than you and I combined want to have clarity in his son Jesus. That's his promise to us. Where there is wisdom, he will, where there is a lack of wisdom, he will grant it. Where there is an absence of hope, he will provide it. When we need joy, he will provide it. Everything we read in the Bible is God telling us to bring these things to him and to have a faith in him that actually believes deeply enough that he will make changes in those areas of our lives. And so if you come here, here's how we wrap up. If you've come here questioning the resurrection or any other element of the faith, we at Restoration want you to know two things. You are welcome here. And I mean this wholeheartedly. Uh, one of the things that deeply shaped my coming to Christ it was almost 23 years old when it happened, was people's willingness to answer my questions. And when they didn't have answers, they would, they would tell me they would look into them. And what I loved more than the answers over time was the fact that they were willing to wrestle with these things with me. And so if you have questions, you need to know you're welcome here. We all have questions. Everybody has questions. You might not admit them, but we have them. We love people who have the guts to wrestle with the hard questions of our faith. And we do our best to answer them whenever it's possible. So keep coming. Keep asking your questions to us. Keep asking your questions to God and know that he promises to answer them. If you're seeking answers in life about him, he wants to give them to you. He really does. He revealed the, the mystery was made known. That's what the cross says. Like, hey, all the stuff you're wondering about, God in heaven, here's my son Jesus. It's made known now. There are no more secrets with God. Jesus made it known. He made it known who God is, what he expects of us, and how his love and his grace fuels the capability for all those things to happen. And then when they realized we couldn't do it, we knew we couldn't do it. Jesus goes to the cross for us and then provides life in the places where we cannot have it. Everything has been done. It's a matter of whether or not we have the faith in it and we sort of coat on the coat, uh, coast on the coattails of the Holy Spirit's power and authority to bring this to fruition in our life. Keep asking your questions. I know you're welcome here. And secondly, I would say, Anytime I give a, a message, which is on a weekly ba basis, especially an Easter one, you know, this is like my niece tells us, like, this must be tough, Anthony, uh, you know, Uncle Anthony, because this is like the Super Bowl of church, right? <laughs> it sort of is, like 10 billion people view, view it, and all, half of you are here for the commercials, right? That kind of a thing. <clears throat> it's sort of like I don't feel pressure over Easter anymore because this is one more day in God's economy. But what I want you to know is that oftentimes people show up on a Sunday like this, and they even place higher expectations on themselves that God might have for them. I'm, if you came in here with a faith issue, hear me. Don't think that I wrote this message this week to convince you to believe or to believe in Jesus more deeply. I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a goal and a hope. I would love that. But I'm not naive, naive enough to think, unless God does something you know, profoundly deep in your life right now, instantaneously deep, that one 40-minute message is going to be enough to answer all of your questions. It's a hope, but not a goal. That said, if you have doubts, we ask that you be courageous enough to, to put that same scalpel upon them. If you've come in here critiquing Christianity or you're in Jesus but have questions about it, at some point you have to ask questions about your questions. And that's where I'm driving today. That's what I'm trying to get us to see. Otherwise, you actually do become the one guilty of checking your brains at the door. You give up pursuing clarity. And who knows, you might even be surprised about the conclusion you draw when you come to faith in Christ for the first time or really grow in an area of your faith that you've been struggling with. And so if you feel this way right now or a way that I have not mentioned, if you've come here doubting Easter and the resurrection, 
Or maybe you really believe Jesus did overcome the grave, but you've gotten so numb to that truth. Like the words we sang today were just not, you heard them, but you didn't feel them. And I'm using feeling in the deep godly sense. They didn't really shape you or reshape you. Or maybe you're saying like, I hear this stuff every week, but I cannot get my hands to oblige. I know I'm supposed to, but I just don't. Whatever it is, I want to challenge you today to doubt that doubt. Stop asking the questions about why you won't and ask God what it takes to, to bring that about in your life. Doubt the doubt. Trust in God's promises again. Talk to somebody about that. Let us know in those cards. Send an email. Call us. Grab us after worship. We're here for you. Because that doubt is the roadblock keeping you from experiencing the hope Jesus offers you this weekend. A hope he died for you to have. And a hope he wants you to live for the rest of your days on this earth and in an eternity with. So this morning, do just that. Ask yourself, what is your faith in? Because it's something. And if you come to the conclusion that if you're unsure where your faith is, or you've come to the conclusion that your faith is in something that it doesn't need to be in, ask God to help you take a step of faith in Jesus. Don't jump off the cliff. Take a step beyond what you can just see. Believe in him and let that life-changing power we sing about, we have socialized over, we have talked about here in truth and in teaching, let the power of Jesus' resurrection change you forever. Because his resurrection did nothing short of that. It changed the world. And part of that world is you and me. God is changing things at all times. He's bringing life and light to areas of our world and to people where there is darkness and shadow. And you are included in that promise. He wants you to know him deeply and to grow in him deeply and to be renewed in him in meaningful ways. Let the resurrection change you forever because he has risen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you for a weekend that, that really challenge us, challenges us to, to renew and reflect upon the goodness and the grace of your son, Jesus. This is a, is a moment in history that each year we remember and celebrate. It's a moment in history, God, that, that is designed to help us reroute, to reorient our lives around your son, to think about who your son is for the first time. It is my prayer now as we move into a, a brief time of response that you would take these moments we have listening to you and you would use them now to solidify in our minds and in our hearts what our next steps are in you. I know without a shadow of a doubt that every person in this room, you have a future for them, whether or not they can see that or feel that. And I pray that you would make that clear to all of us, not just as individuals, but we as a church family of body. Show us, God, who you are in deep and meaningful ways. Address our questions, or at least put us on the paths to deal with that stuff. And I pray today that for the first time, if you are here wrestling with who Jesus is, you would really ask the question whether or not it's time to place your faith in him. And if you are in Jesus, that you would really ask what it means to renew your faith in him and love and worship him in more deep and meaningful ways. Bless this time we have now in response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.